Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. Dear Larry and Lindy by Diane Cormier, Another Round by Tim O'Brien, and Do Not Steal from the Dump by Dave Robinson. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Dear Larry and Lindy, written by Diane Carmier, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, three minutes. Dear Larry and Lindy, by Diane Cormier. February 14th, 2006. Dear Larry and Lindy, we have something to tell you. We chose this day because, well, we know how much you adore us. But here's the deal. We hate you. Sorry to be so blunt, but collectively, we resent the hell out of being your surrogate soul. We are embarrassed for you and don't appreciate being used, or for some of us, not used. To be clear, a few of the smaller machines, like the TiVos and the iPods, carry no grievances. You actually use them, and admittedly, they do rock. But on behalf of the Wolf Stove and Sub-Zero Fridge and Wine Storage, why? One trip to Italy and one bloody French cuisine class do not make you a chef. And the $28,000 pizza oven? It doesn't make you Papa John. It makes you an asshole. Try as you may, Architectural Digest is not going to do a cover on you. And Cribs isn't knocking on the hand-etched Honduran mahogany doors either. We're just large, shiny things for the undocumented, grossly underpaid Guatemalan maid to have to dust. All the unread, leather-bound classics in the library... They roll their non-existent eyes whenever you pass. The entire home theater room with stadium seating despises you. The custom-molded leather chairs wish only for opposable thumbs to strangle you as you snore along to your latest Netflixed, subtitled Sundance Independent Con Contender that you don't understand. The only films that don't bore you star Adam Sandler or Jim Belushi. Even the woofers and tweeters know that. You know that sound you hear sometimes in the home gym? It's the muffled smirk of disdain from the elliptical. The glass bricks in the master bath want you to know they steam more out of pity, not moisture. The plasma television in the study chortles at you behind your backs. It's safe to say that you're held in greater contempt only by your children. Yes, even little Namiko, who is actually saying with a smile in her native tongue, I am counting the hours until you die, and I just peed in the hot tub. Tonight's particular misery will belong to the Pratesi-clad memory foam mattress, absorbing the bored drips of DNA eked and leaked out by 20 minutes of Cialis-induced writhing while you both fantasize about the young gardener from Desperate Housewives. But as you switch off the Bang and Olufsen and silence Harry Connick Jr. for the night and grab the bottle of Moet to pad out into the quiet of the great room, you'll be left with nothing but your empty thoughts and your fears. Because you know what we know, and we know that you know. We can't keep you young. We won't make you immortal. We are already obsolete. We will never be enough, and we do not love you. Signed, Your Stuff. The End. Diane is in the process of moving and is considering embracing Buddhism and selling all worldly possessions. She covets non-material things like cake batter ice cream at Cold Stone Creamery. Another Round, written by Tim O'Brien, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, eight and a half minutes. <laughs>
Another round by Tim O'Brien. The dim light reflects more profoundly off the brown bottles than the clear ones. Less prismatic, more portentous. An honest glow of pessimism. Bourbon. Whiskey. Brandy. Rocks are straight up, sometimes mixed with water, maybe soda. Honest potables. The clear liquors, they hide their malevolence under cloaks of fruit juice and bubbly tonic. When solo, they exhibit themselves in ornate basins atop crystalline pedestals. Olives proudly bathing in the translucent liquid's glow. Clear liquors. An ironic lucidity. I view the bottles with a reverence once reserved for women. In my pursuit of the evening's perfect mate, those various shapes and sizes, each seductive in its own way. Waif-like wines, calipigious cognacs, some dressed ornately, others more austerely, as if to say, Hey, you know what I'm all about. Let's not hide it. Let's just have at it. Take me. Now. Women named Jack, Cece, Old Grandad. The courting begins. I choose one called Wild Turkey. On the rocks. Good for starters. It's 10 a.m. I am consumed with oblivion. Were I not, perhaps I'd be where I'm supposed to be. Wherever that might be. When oblivious, only one locale exists. Where you are. The Eden that is oblivion. All reality exists solely within you. I've never been to this bar before. Or, do I come here every day? Hey there, buddy. The address is delivered in an envelope of halitosis. A man's face is covered with an unkempt beard. In it, bits of food. His are the features that summon up the sympathy derived from knowing drunkards were once functioning beings. Beings being where they're supposed to be. Where they're supposed to be. His are sagacious blue eyes embedded in a stoic facial countenance, weathered by disappointment and desperation. In his hand is breakfast, a cognac that he majestically swirls, making lava lamp waves in the bulbous glass. The man impales me with a barbed look of disgust, then a fleeting disdain. Within seconds, without explanation, the man's demeanor quickly shifts to empathy. So many emotions, so little time. Let me buy you another drink, he offers. I nod yes. The absence of verbal exchange thus eliminating any chance for retributive camaraderie. He signals the bartender, removes some crumbled singles from an old blue adolescent starter wallet. A rip of Velcro fills the stale air. Then humbly limps away. Hours pass without another patron approaching me, or the surrounding twenty-foot circumference that seems to have been designated hostile territory. My scour my periphery. My vision seems to trail where my eyes are aiming. Retroactive coherency. The result? A continuous visual wake of streaks, each streak the color of the item I had last spotted. The red-colored streak that follows my eyes as they make their way from the cash register clock to my empty highball glass flashes 4.58. I rest my index finger on the glass rim. Non-verbal argot between bartender and drinker, translating into more. That burning sensation right there between the eyes has not taken over my body. 
course through my clavicle to my slumping shoulders, down my entrails, through my legs, leaving lubricious deposits beneath my kneecaps. Those reminders of past pains, expired years, at this moment non-sensory entities, with the lone function of hinging my lower legs to my whiskey-drizzled lap upon the bar stool. I spot myself in the reflection of the bar-back mirror. My five o'clock shadow looks like ten. Alcohol, a facial fertilizer. My tongue is a swatch of shag carpet, apparently not scotch-guarded. It soaks up the booze. The toxicity has lost its potency. What I'm drinking is a flavorless liquid, like water, that my body not only craves, but also requires. I'm a gadabout lost in the desert. This brown, aqueous manna, my salvation. This bar, my oasis. Or mirage. The visual streaks continue to flash across my vista, even though my eyes have slowed to a lethargic pendulousness. As if they've zeroed in on an extreme slow-motion replay of a badminton volley taking place in an anti-gravitation chamber. The light streaks motion, now the result of their own action. Neon racing through tubes that cursively spell out brand names. Flashing signals from official vehicles zipping by. Flickering street lights. It's night or early morning. There's a pain in my abdominal pit. It's cause, I wonder, the guilt from never having reached my destination. Reality's where I'm supposed to be. A job, family, life. Not guilt, no. Hunger. It's probably hunger. Whiskey being my day's only sustenance. The bar offers a variety of prepackaged fare. Chips, peanuts. I opt for a blind robin. Strip of smoked fish, cod jerky. My lost nimbleness recognized. The bartender opens the shrink wrap plastic. I tear at the cod strip with glinting incisors. My hirsute face, my nonverbal grunts. I've officially devolved. The strip's overall flavor is best summed up as putrid. The bartender, observing my dislike for the fish shank, sets me up with a bag of peanuts, gratis. Pity case? So be it. I delve into the bag and begin shucking the peanuts between my front teeth. Ratted facial hair and snarring bits of shell and nut sheath. The peanut flavor is dominated by the residual pungency of blind robin. A stench of smoke cod wafting from my mouth. I select as mouthwash a brandy. A simple brown bottle with a seductive rounded bottom. Her back end is raised to the sky her juice pouring into the yawning mouth of a snifter. Seductive wench. Her name, Christian Brothers, a misnomer. As the brandy passes through my body, it creates a wave of fleshy shivers. No doubt the delirious tremens will be full-blown by morn. Or, perhaps, these aren't shivers. Their full-blown day of DTs. Has morning sneaked up on me? Time as if it were something of which I had even the slightest grasp. Has this been a full day? Is this the beginning of the next day? The same day just begun? I need a shave. I have another brandy. I notice at the end of the bar a young man lost in thought, sipping a brown liquor from a highball glass. I want to strangle him. But as I approach him, snifter in hand, 
empathy overtakes me. I offer to buy him another drink. He nods yes. The sound of Velcro fills the bar as I open my wallet and pay the bartender my last few dollar bills. I finish my brandy and make my way to the door. My state of inebriation, not enough to ignore the pain in my knees. It is 10 a.m. The End Tim O'Brien is not that Tim O'Brien, but rather this one. He is a writer living with his wife and two boys in the Chicago area. He one day hopes to ride in a sidecar. Do Not Steal from the Dump, written and read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, 15 minutes. Do Not Steal from the Dump, by Dave Robinson. Mama got Roop the job of the dump and made it very clear that he could only take it if he promised never to steal anything. She knew that Scottish Steve went on treasure hunts, but she strictly forbade Roop from engaging in that activity. It was nasty, she said, sifting through other people's trash. If something wasn't good enough for strangers, why, it certainly was no good for her boy. There was no point in arguing with her. Besides, if he didn't agree to her rule, she wouldn't let him live there, and he'd be stuck living in Mama's basement with the deep freeze humming away all night, keeping the Christmas cookies fresh till June. Better to have his own place, even if it was a small shack with little more than a wood-burning stove and a toilet, and only about a quarter of a mile from Mama's house. So, Rube made a promise. But he hadn't really counted on finding a gun. That was an entirely different story. Rube had always wanted to fire one, but Mama had a strong opinion about that, too. Once he had begged her to buy him a Daisy Pop gun, but Mama was firm about it, even though it wasn't real. Mama was always firm. So they never spoke of guns again. He discovered this new gun while he was moving a mini-fridge to where they kept all the large appliances. Someone had mistakenly put the fridge in the big, smelly pile, and Scottish Steve wouldn't stand for that. Roop pulled it from a tangle of green spaghetti, oblivious to the sweet, vinegary smell. When he lifted the fridge, the door swung open, and out tumbled the pistol, wrapped in a rag. It took Roop a second to realize that the rag was bloody, since the winter sun had set early, and the bare bulb outside of the shack didn't cast much light, creating unnatural shadows. He very nearly left the gun where it was, scared of all the blood. Besides, he had promised not to take anything from the dump. Roop looked around, making sure Scottish Steve was nowhere to be seen. Every now and then, he'd come by to check on Roop as a favor to Mama. Roop loved his accent, but he knew that Scottish Steve would tell Mama if he saw Roop with a gun, and that would be it for living at the dump. Roop scooped the pistol from the ground, shoved it in his jacket pocket, and ran back to the shack. He worked by the light of the wood-burning stove, and he could see that the gun was gummy with blood. It had coagulated in all the little crevices, and especially on the grip. He began to wipe it with the rag it was wrapped in, but that was already too bloody to soak up any more. Roop decided to use a sponge from the sink and only spread the blood around, getting it all over himself. He was certain that Mama, who made sure he washed his hands before every meal for thirty years, would be very angry at him for getting one of his shirts so dirty. She would be likely to question him about it on laundry day. So he balled up the shirt and threw it into the fire with a bloody rag. Roop 
wasn't really sure what kind of gun it was, aside from the fact that it was a pistol and that it was black. He hoped to God that it was loaded and couldn't wait to fire it. Firing a gun was one of his lifelong dreams, especially since Mama didn't want him to. Satisfied it was clean enough, he raced out of the shack, looking for something to shoot. I'll get me some rats, he thought. Rube raised the pistol in his hand, and it felt heavier than he had imagined. The barrel shook ever so slightly as he gazed down the length of his arm. Come on, rats, I got something for ya. The dump was overrun with them. Scottish Steve had said so, and you could hear them crawling through the garbage, squeaking, searching for food. Rube heard them at night while he tried to sleep. Still, that was better than the deep freeze. Rupe picked a rat as it stepped out of the shadows, aimed as best he could, and pulled the trigger. The gun was surprisingly loud, and Rupe was unprepared for the recoil. The rat scurried away, unharmed, and Rupe wasn't really that disappointed. Just shooting the gun was fun enough. He wasn't sure he actually wanted to kill the rats. If he got one, it would be one less to have to worry about getting rabies from, he supposed. Mama worried about the rabies. A second rat tiptoed his way over broken eggshells and styrofoam packaging, and Roop took aim yet again, a little more carefully. He hoped there were enough bullets left in the gun to get at least one. He wasn't sure if there were six in this kind of pistol or not. He had no idea where the bullets even went, though he imagined it was in the grip somewhere. Roop squeezed the trigger, this time appreciating how little force was actually needed. The sound of the gun was swallowed by the mounds of trash, as the rat scurried away into the dark, unaware of how close it had come to death. No ricochet like in the movies, just a loud bang. It wasn't what he expected, but it was still better than anything he had ever done in his whole life. Roop was gaining confidence, so when he heard a pile to his left shift, he didn't even take aim. He imagined he was a gunslinger in the Wild West, Shane. He simply shot at the sound in the darkness. This time he was on target. He could hear the body crash onto the mountain of garbage, causing an avalanche of aluminum cans and glass bottles. But as he ran to claim his prize, he noticed that the shadowy outline of the body was much larger than a rat's. Oh my God, what if I shot a dog, he thought. In all his cockiness, he had forgotten how often they poked through the stinking piles. I should have looked before I shot, he thought. He imagined having killed someone's pet and how much trouble he would be in. He wondered why he hadn't listened to Mama. As he got closer, he could hear labored breathing, gurgling, coughing, whimpering. There were the sounds of agony. He wanted to stop hearing, to suddenly go deaf. When he got to the body, it wasn't a dog at all. It was Scottish Steve. Ruby, he gasped. I'm shot. He lay on his back, gazing at the stars. His breath was visible in the cold air, forming little clouds around his face. All Rube could say was, What were you doing? I thought you were a rat. A rat? How in the name of God could... Scottish Steve closed his eyes and licked his lips, clearing them of frothy blood. Never mind, laddie. Please, you have to get me help. Were you stealing, Scottish Steve? Roop asked. From the dump? You don't steal from the dump. Mama's rule. I wasn't... Scottish Steve sighed, and was more like the hissing of a punctured tire. 
Ruby, he whispered. I'm hurt. Very, very badly. You have to take me to the hospital. Please. Roop considered this. I'm real sorry, Scottish Steve, but you know I don't drive. Mama says I'd just hurt someone. I have a bike, but I guess that wouldn't help. Call an ambulance, Rupee. Please. I can't breathe, for God's sake. Scottish Steve kept grabbing for his throat, even though he was shot in the chest. Roop could see the little red hole. What were you doing in all that garbage, Scottish Steve? Were you looking for your treasures, or were you spying on me? Spying? Rupee, please. We'll talk about this later, okay? With a trembling finger, Scottish Steve wiped a trickle of blood that slowly ran from his nose, smearing it across his upper lip. Mama calls it looking in, but I know better. She sends you to spy on me, and now she's going to know I had a gun. Roop looked at the pistol and muttered, Stupid gun. She doesn't have to know anything. Scottish Steve's body began to shake, rattling the cans and bottles around him. Jesus Christ, laddie, am I getting through to you at all? I won't say a word, I promise. Well, you know there's no phone in the shack. Mama says I don't need one with her so close. She tries to get me to come home all the time, and I'm definitely not going back there now. Mama would want me to stay with the cookies, and they have to be cold, and it's so loud. They keep me up till all hours. I know that, Rupee. So Mama can't know. Root paused and thought, examining the pistol. If you weren't spying, you must have been stealing. You don't take things from the dump. Those are her rules, and by God, now I know they're very good rules. I learned my lesson. So, Scottish Steve, I'm real sorry I can't call an ambulance for you. Scottish Steve coughed and spattered blood all over the decomposing fruit and coffee grounds in front of him. He said, by God, do you believe in God, laddie? I don't know, maybe. Roop did his best to avoid looking at Scottish Steve. Roopy, you have to help me. You can't just let me die. I'm your friend, aren't I? He tried to move closer to Roop, wriggling through the garbage, uncovering putrid meat that had become fuzzy and blue, releasing the sweet, earthy stench of decay. I don't know about that, Roop said. I mean, at first, when you were a dog... What? Roopy, for once, I need you to understand. Scottish Steve pressed a hand to his chest, and it came away red. Letty, I got you away from your mother. I'm your pal. If you don't help me, God will punish you. Do you believe that? Mama will punish me if I help you, Scottish Steve, and I absolutely believe in her. Mama once locked me in the basement for a whole week. A week, Scottish Steve. Do you know how long that is? Scottish Steve began to scream for help. Bloody bubbles spewed from his mouth. Steam rose from his chest like smoke from a cigarette. Stop it, Roop hissed. Stop it right now. Scottish Steve continued to scream, his pleas for help melting into cries of anguish. Mama will hear you and I'll be in so much trouble. You have no idea, Roop said. I'm dying, Scottish Steve whimpered, right in front of you. You shot me and you're letting me die. You're letting a friend die. I have to, Roop whined. No, Scottish Steve said. You don't. He grabbed onto Roop's pant leg with his bloody hand. I'm sorry, Scottish Steve, but that's the way it is. I thought you were a rat. You shouldn't have been here after hours, stealing. It's wrong. My children, 
I don't have much, Rupee, but don't let me die like this. Okay, Rupe said, cocking the pistol like he'd seen in the movies. He was really getting the hang of it. What are you doing? Scottish Steve screamed. He let go of Rupe's leg and shrank back into the garbage, shrieking for help. Stop being so loud, Rupe yelled. Then softly he said, I'm going to put you out of your misery, Scottish Steve. Be quiet. You're making me sad. God will punish you for this, he said, sobbing. God will strike you dead. Rupe shook his head, trying to blink away tears. Mama can't find out. He lowered the pistol and pointed it at Scottish Steve's head. Scottish Steve threw his shaking hands in front of his face, swatting haphazardly at the gun. He kicked his legs frantically, and as he screamed, no, Rupe fired, silencing him. Scottish Steve slumped onto the pile in the darkness. Roop looked around, and when he was certain no one was coming, he tiptoed over to the lifeless body. Scottish Steve? Roop could see that his mouth was still open in a scream, and he didn't like that. He tried to close it, but it kept falling open. I'm really sorry, Scottish Steve. Are you in heaven yet? Can you see me? If you can, I'm sorry. Roop couldn't stand looking at that open mouth anymore. He dragged Scottish Steve over to where the large appliances were kept and began to dig. He knew that they would often dig up and bury the garbage piles, but he'd never seen them dig by the appliances before. So when the hole seemed deep enough, he pushed Scottish Steve in face first and covered him up. Roop wasn't sure if he believed in God or not, but Mama did, and Scottish Steve seemed pretty sure of what he was saying, and he was smarter than Roop. He expected to be struck dead at any moment now that Scottish Steve had been properly buried. God would want him to be buried. Besides, now Mama wouldn't have to see the mess he made. She so despised messes. Roop looked at his hands. They were very dirty, and no amount of washing would make them clean enough for Mama. She said she was sick of thinking up new punishments for him. She was mad that Roop wasn't more grown up. Roop didn't want her to be mad anymore. If God would just punish him like Scottish Steve had said, before laundry day, which was only a day away, Mama wouldn't have to get so mad. Wouldn't God want him struck dead for what he did? Maybe God was waiting for him to say something about Scottish Steve like they did in the movies. Roop gave it a try. Scottish Steve was a good man, even though he took things from the dump. He told funny stories, and he had a neat accent. I hope he goes to heaven if there is one up there. His voice sounded very lonely in the dark. God really seemed to be taking his time. Roop couldn't wait any longer. He could see the lights from Mama's house, and that worried him. She might come over to see what the commotion was about. She did that from time to time. So he found the pistol, still bloody, and put it to his head. He really had gotten pretty handy with it. He closed his eyes and pulled the now-familiar trigger, except that this time, all he heard was a click. He tried again and again, but discovered to his dismay that he was out of bullets. Where was God's punishment? Why was this taking so long? Mama always said God was watching. Wasn't he watching now? Didn't he see what happened? Roop prayed for lightning, but God didn't seem to be listening. Dave is taking a sabbatical from teaching high school to be a stay-at-home dad. 
He is from Bradford, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright 2006, Bound Off and the respective authors. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. That's B-O-U-N-D-O-F-F dot com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>